this sermon this morning here, uh, moving from chapter 6 into chapter 7, we're actually entering into the second half of the book of Ecclesiastes, kind of around verse uh, 7 through 9, uh, kind of thematically ends uh, the first half of the book, marking the second half for our next few weeks of adventure. As we conclude through his kind of uh, quests, he's handled several here through wealth and through honor, through uh, providence and handling life and its disappointments and so on and so forth. And I conclude just kind of the way he's been handling it for your benefit here is that the world that is life lived under the sun. That's typically a mark of those who are living out their existence apart from faith those who simply just kind of live for the here and now, or as we have described it along for weeks now, they simply live in the horizontal with no mind or idea, faith resting in, none of that, in the vertical. And this life under the sun, the preacher this morning admits, it is perplexing and troubling. It is. You can look around you through experience that you have, through um, uh things that you've sought and they have not given you that benefit which you thought they would, that is that appearances are false oftentimes, lacking in authenticity or substance. So you seek to gain them, you spare no effort in achieving them, only to find out that they lack in authenticity and they don't deliver that which they promised. One sacrifice to acquire a particular item, or perhaps beyond items, it is status. He's covered this time and time again, that one seeks status from others or items only to find the items hollow and the status acquired underwhelming. But in the wake... There is still the broken relationships. There is still the isolation that takes place. There is that sense of self-loathing that will take place. That is, you have it, you're cloaked in it, maybe the title has been achieved, the sacrifices that are there, all the dead bodies are lying around you to prove you have made your sacrifices to achieve this. And it's underwhelming. As we looked a week or two ago, the man eats in darkness even though he has what he needs. He's sad, he's angry, he's vexed, he's depressed, he's eating in darkness. That is, it didn't deliver. Circumstances and scenarios he has covered, just simply looking at life, how it operates under the sun, and he concludes, circumstances and scenarios that you look at under the sun, living your life on a day-to-day basis, perhaps on the news, in the headlines, or your own concrete experiences. They're filled with false dilemmas, offering you false choices, absolutely this or absolutely that. It's confusing. Where does my heart rest? False dilemmas leading to a distortion of any sense of facts on the ground, whereby I can obtain some sense of good, solid conclusion. I look around at all that is taking place, and it's filled with false choices, False dilemmas for me, leading to the distortion of any real facts that then renders a conclusion to the matter uncertain. I get exhausted simply living out my life under the sun. This is the idea of what the preacher has been getting at 
each and every course that we have tracked with him. He actually now kind of hits yet another high point of exhaustion. That is, he concludes that this vexing nature of life, and indeed he has said again and again, whether it's madness, vanity, futility, it is vexing. He encouraged us way earlier in his quest to just live ignorantly. It's easier. Remember, the more you know is not empowering. He's saying the more you know, the more you're vexed. You find out things are worse than you had ever imagined. Again, we recall the Planned Parenthood videos during that time in his quest for our time joining him. The more you know, you already know it's horrific, but then you find out just how horrific and it's vexing. Drives one that is sober-minded to madness. That is, the nature of life is so vexing, says the preacher, that it actually makes many feel that death is more desirable than birth. I'm not going to cover the portion of 6, 1 through 9 or 10 or so, because we covered it last week at the end of 5, and he begins kind of anecdotally to give an expression of his quest of chapter 5 in the beginning portions of chapter 6. They really kind of work together. And so we've already covered this as he moves to give an anecdotal experience. However, I do want to draw your attention to verse 3, where he does say this, this sense of death being more pleasurable through all of these vexing experiences, death almost appears better than birth. If a man fathers a hundred children, lives many years, so the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and we already covered those last week, that living simply, that life of the laborer, here this individual has all of these things. And he's not satisfied. God does not give him freedom to enjoy them. He's vexed by them. He also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. And he grounds that in verse 4. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything. Yet it finds rest rather than he. So then he goes on to explain death shortly there. And he says, this appears that if you watch what we see under the sun, and one is not exposed to life lived in time, blessed is he, for life is filled with perplexing ambiguities, turbulence at every pass. And it creates a vexing situation for one who lives simply in the here and now with no sense for the eternal. He progresses this morning as we move forward to explain and ground your life lived under the sun this way. Notice where we're progressing this morning in verse 10. Whoever has come to be has all, uh, whatever has come to be has already been named. And you recall this from the very first chapter. Again, there's nothing new going on, guys. And it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. 
Here he is fixing our firm foot before he hits us with a number of proverbial sayings. You know, he's just going proverb, 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 proverb to try and bring clarity. Unfortunately, we're kind of uh, you know, left-footed when it comes to proverbial wisdom. It's not like we speak proverbs to one another, and we're not well-versed in gathering our information by proverb necessarily in our culture. So he's going to hit us with a list of proverbs that we're going to look at in just a moment. But he grounds his, what he's going to proceed to give us in proverb, he grounds it right here in providence. This is how we're to handle life lived under the sun. He grounds it in providence of verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named. There's nothing new. And again, in chapter 1, this is as he describes God's providence. And it is known what man is. And here's the providence of our life situation in this vexing, turbulent, difficult, complex ambiguity that we're asked to walk through in life lived every day. He says, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. In other words, if I could clarify verse 10 for our going forward, he is explaining here that we must remember each and every one of us through the quests, through the difficulties, through the ambiguities that God providentially governs our lives and that there is no changing that There is no challenge to that, and we cannot contend with him. Though it be vexing, though it be troubling, though it be difficult, though it have have more grays than blacks and whites, God is governing the earth that we live upon. God's providence does reign in life's moments, each and every one of them, and we cannot change his providence, we cannot challenge it, we cannot redirect it, we cannot contend with him. He governs all of life lived under the sun. What does this kind of practically yield or positively yield as we move forward then? And I'll show it to you how he expresses it to us, but it is this. If this be true, There is meaning then, even though we may not readily see it, there is meaning in all of it. Though we might not have immediate accessibility to determine, to unwind, to peel back all the layers and say, aha, I laid hold of it, I have a conclusion to the the matter. Maybe we're left in the dark on the conclusion to the matter, but that does not mean that there is not one. For man is not able to contend with one who is stronger than him. God is in control, governing. Even what seems to be to us, life's ambiguities. God righteously governs them. This then moves the preacher to ask you this morning, before he hits you with a series of Proverbs, making life lived under the sun more meaningful, he asks you a rhetorical question to get you started. Notice in verse 11, he proceeds, the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? 
when he constantly is seeking out the deeper meaning, constantly seeking after to peel it all apart, constantly striving to make sense of everything, rather step back and grasp, God makes sense of everything. He is stronger than us. He is able. He is controlling. He is guiding. The more words, the more exploration, what, it's vanity. What advantage do you have to try and unwind the mystery Verse 12, he hits you with that rhetorical question. For who, let me ask you, who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? You tell me, he asks. You tell me, who knows what is good for man the few days of his existence? Who is it? Bring him forward. To make sense of all of this ambiguity. To make sense of all of the nuances and the complexities that we face day in and day out. Ethically, socially, relationally, theologically. Bring forth the man to make it all plain. Who can do so? The answer, obviously, that each of us yields. Who can tell us what is good? That is, clarify all that is ambiguous, ambiguous. The answer to that is no one. No one can. No one pastor can. No one theologian can. No one philosopher. No one politician. No one parent. No one friend. No one human can. And then this begs the question that we must ask, and that is, why not? Why not? Why is it not within the realm of possibility that one could come and untie this knot? Make clear all of its purposes and meanings. Make clear why this evil is able to do this, and why this goodness seems to be withheld with this, why these groups are oppressed in this, and why this is out of control over here, and why this is so stringent and tight over here, and why this is up, and why it's down, and why the market's this, making a left instead of a right. Why can't someone come forth? Why is that not within the realm of possibility? There's a few really smart individuals in this world. Well, the answer the preacher says it's because no mortal human being subject to time and space, that is, of the flesh, no mortal human being can tell yet another mortal human being, that is just a human being, what will become after him. In other, there's no, because there's no fortune tellers on the earth. I know some of you have maybe gone to the booths at the carnivals. Mistake. You actually didn't learn your future there. The tarot cards don't exactly get providence right. And this is, again, nothing new under the sun. There are no future or fortune tellers on the earth. You see how he says that. He answers, you have this, this vain life, this, this momentary existence. It passes like a shadow. Who's going to tell you about all things made plain? No one. And this is the reason, because no one can tell man what will be after him. Who, who can do that? No one. That's his answer to the question. 
Who knows what is good? No one, because man cannot tell another man what will be after him. There are no fortune tellers to tell you in every given situation the right path to take. We certainly seek wisdom, encouragement, guidance from others, providentially in our lives, relationships, a web of relationships that we have. And we ask, and we receive insight from them. No one would deny that. In fact, it's prudent and biblically taught. But no one individual can say, aha, so-and-so, this, this one thing, this is what you need to do. This one concrete thing, not kind of, sort of, some of this and kind of, sort of, I'm telling you definitively, this is good for your life. Boom. You say, it just seems a bit more complex than that. Nope, I know so. Don't worry about it. Do this one thing. I know it. He says, no mortal man can say that to another man. Woman to woman. Just human to human. We can offer guidance, clarity, help, encouragement. But what one mortal will say, I know the end of all matters. So do this. The preacher says, there is no one. In other words, it is not, I trust you agree, being exasperated and frustrated at times with this, but believing it to be true, that it is not within the scope of our knowledge or human experience to be able to 100% without a doubt determine what God's purposes are for our lives lived under the sun. Many of you in different tracks right now, career-wise, school-wise, um, uh, relationally, so on and so forth. Many different aspects of one's life that are always filled with moving parts. Rarely are our lives simply fixed. Th this never moves, this never moves, this never moves, and this never changes. But it just, come on. There's always fluidity, th 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 which then gives a bit of anxiety. Because we would really just like it to be as concrete as like, well, maybe a little more sturdy than the pulpit. I was going to say, this is not that sturdy. So you get the idea, something, the wall, I don't think that's going to fall anytime soon. Something like that. That, that. That's what we would really like life situations to be like. In fact, it's great. It's flat. It, it, it doesn't have any turns or, or ups and downs in it. I mean, it, it's, and if it does, they're very, the variables are very slight manageable. That's how we want life. Life is nothing like that, and we get frustrated by that, and we want someone to come in, even if we could just cut them a check, and, and, and flatten life out, take out its turbulent features, its complexities that are at work. But it isn't within the scope of human knowledge to be able to do such things. What then does that move us to do in the text? What, what, what is the answer then? Further frustration, throw your hands up in the air, fall on the ground, not live, don't get out of bed. Is that, is that our next best step? What, what are we going to do then? We have to live. And if you can't sort it out for me and I can't sort it out for you 100%, then what, where, what do we have? What do we then possess? And the preacher is going to drive us toward the end. But let me prime us this direction this is the backdrop that is set up for simply this. This is what we have. We have faith. If life is that tricky, 
Life is that complex. Life is always moving. Not, everything is mobile. Nothing is simply fixed. Then this is what we must do. Trust God in all matters. I, it, when we say something like that, even when I was typing it out, it's like that's a Christian platitude kind of thrown out. Like that, 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 you want to talk about oversimplification. That's what we're called to do in the gospel. It's to place our faith into the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he passed through life in obedience, in active obedience for us. He passed through death in his passive obedience on our behalf. And he was raised victoriously for our justification. His announcement goes out. That's called the gospel, the proclamation that he has overcome death. He is no longer among the dead. He is among the living. We hear that call, and we are told to repent of sin and place our faith squarely in the Lord Jesus Christ. To trust him or entrust our lives unto him. And it's not like we did. Like, what's my spiritual birthday? What day was that? Like, I think it was April 19. Every day, we place our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the backdrop to difficult providence What does it call forth if a human cannot unto a human make plain all of their path? It is to trust God in everything. And it is in this way, let me further describe. It is trusting God in all matters instead of, that is in direct contrast to, instead of what we tend to do. And that is to rely upon the circumstances. To put faith in often hard to pin down appearances that's what we tend to do i I think this is probably the right thing to do and so i'm kind of banking on it because it seems most tangible most clear to me and there goes that one panic i thought i had it figured out that person didn't call me back i'm not getting that job panic reigns no But that person can't unlock the ambiguity to life for you. They they would not have been the end. That job would not have been an end for you. Would not have ended all challenges in providence for you. Would not have clarified your life to the absolute. Would not have taken away all burdens experienced. See, they, they too... Fluctuate. They too move, come and go. Opportunities come, opportunities go. Doors open, doors close. Things happen in real time. But there is one to whom there is no shadow of turning, no seasons of change. That's God our Father who is in heaven. With that said, the preacher does insist, and, and with that idea of providence, our faith resting in squarely and solely in God through faith in Christ, 
in all matters as they come and go. He remains constant. With that said, let me move you toward the Proverbs this morning. That is that the preacher insists this to each of us. Banking on providence, the preacher insists that God has so structured providence, he has so structured life lived daily, that there is somewhat of a good way to live that is a good life to be had that is easily identifiable. Okay, so again, with the backdrop, please don't move forward without moving, I guess, forward on what I've already said. Move forward with me on trusting in God in all matters there. So we move forward there. It's not like we go there and life has, again, all the complexities are gone. That, that would be what we would say is an overly simplified mode of living. It's bedrock. It's foundational. In all things, we rest in God. Then as our faith is resting, we in our lives are also mobile. Like tomorrow, you're going to get up. This afternoon, you're going to walk out, hopefully, because we have to lock up at some point. So, as you move forward, life continues to develop in front of you. So the preacher says, God governs and reigns. He is in control. And as you live by faith, there is a good and profitable way to live that is easily identifiable for you. It is readily available unto you to observe and to lay hold of, and if so, chosen. This manner of life will consistently yield better outcomes than something else. So this is kind of what he handles here in the Proverbs is what we would call kind of a measure of common grace. That is, it isn't going to take, in order to identify these observable patterns of life that can be lived while you do live your days that are few and you pass them as a shadow, there are measures in creation itself that set forth patterns whereby if you live according to them, you're going to have a better success than someone who doesn't. This is just kind of God's common goodness to all mankind. We see it grounded in his moral law. How much more so for those whose faith rests in the Lord Jesus Christ? That aren't simply doing it according to some moral code but are doing so by the grace of the Holy Spirit who is producing his fruits in their lives. There is a measurable, accessible manner whereby you can live your life successfully. That is, in one manner which is more helpful than another. This is available indeed to all, but how much more so by the grace of Christ through the person of the Holy Spirit who is producing these fruits in his own. Let me walk through them in a Christian manner uh, as these Proverbs are set forward, as these basic observable patterns about life. So what I want to do here, covering chapter 7, is identify five goodnesses. And I know that might not be a word, or I was going to call them betternesses, because that's a term through the passage. This is better than that. Hey, okay, fine. It might seem relativistic a little bit, but hey, this is better than doing that. I mean, okay, it doesn't, it's not the sum total of everything and make everything perfect, but it's better that this is more functional than that. 
And this is how he's giving us these patterns for living. I'm drawing it in this morning on Lord's Day as a Christian assessment. That is the fruits whereby the Holy Spirit produces these fruits by faith in those whose faith rests in and receives all of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Five betternesses or five goodnesses that by faith Relying upon, again, not legalism, but relying upon God's immeasurable grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can meaningfully experience this goodness in our lives. Number one, the very first goodness, is the goodness of personal integrity. The goodness of personal integrity. Look at the text as he, again, settles this kind of providential issue in 11 uh, verse 11 and 12, and then he sets forward his, his pattern of Proverbs. Verse 1 of chapter 7 is this goodness of personal integrity. He says here, a good name is better than, so, so get, get the play on words, verse 12, what man could say to another man, this is what's good. Well, well I'll give you some goodnesses, maybe not ultimately, in every situation that clarifies everything, but here are some good or better than things you can do than others, and that is a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. So here, also in Proverbs 22, verse 1, I'll simply read for you as it's the same wisdom saying that follows verse uh chapter 22 of proverbs verse 1 the same idea of the goodness of personal integrity it's again and again the biblical testimony a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor is better than silver or gold that is the preacher here along with solomon in Proverbs, well acquainted with wisdom literature, uh, how one might live their life profitably insists that a good name that is a godly, for Christians, a godly Christ-like character cultivated through the word by faith is of greater value than riches or favor. I imagine many of us are well acquainted with this comment or either in Proverbs or here in Ecclesiastes when we're speaking to our children. Or maybe it is that your parents took the time to say this to you as you were a child. Or it's so common to all that many speak of it even in a common grace level that you want to develop character. That, that, that you, some sense of morality, of right or wrong, of how to treat your neighbor or as Christian parents instilling scripture into our children to encourage them. They want a godly character. It is more valuable to you. Yes, perhaps at times it's challenging deeply because the immediate return would be to jettison the character and I can gain in the immediate. That is short-sighted. A godly character, that which is rooted in Christ, strengthened by faith, is of greater value than favor from other human beings and riches in materialistic items. Of course, this begs the question, doesn't it, to each one of us? It's so applicational. 
do we value our personal integrity and the testimony of Christ in us above monetary or relational gains? And I put in there relational gains because of the comment of favor. How often we're willing to, again, manipulate relationships, manipulate others in order to gain something. But it cuts at our integrity. It tears away our testimony. Proverbs hits this again and again, and I can't give you all the text here, but he hits us again and again, Solomon, with the idea of flattery. Do we value our personal integrity? Then indeed we would embrace what he says. Here's a better way than another. Something better than precious ointment, that is material gains, that which is rare and yet we've acquired. I'll give you something better. It's a good name, a godly character. Second goodness here outlined in the text for us through this Proverbs, the second goodness, so the first goodness or betterness of what we could find out that's better about life, number one is personal integrity, number two is the goodness of a sober mind. Look at verse two, that is the goodness or the better than-ness is a sober mind, while it is that you live your very few days as you pass them like a shadow Verse 2, or Proverb 2, it is better. Who can tell a man what is good or better? Well, I'll tell you what is better. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind. And the living, they will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of myrrh. Or again, that sense of precious gathered ointment or materialism. Now, look at verse 2 as the living lay it to heart. What is it that the living are laying to heart? And if you look there in the text, quite clearly, he says, For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. They grasp the sense of their days fleeting like a shadow. They know that the end is coming. They gather that. They they understand that. Life is momentary. They grasp it. And so because they know that life will be terminal, it will end, they then allow that to inform how they live in time. The living, the wise, they lay it to heart. This thing is going to wind down. And I'm not waiting for it to then turn around and explain how I should have done something. It informs my life lived now. It is the mark of a sober mind. If you take the symbols in the passage for house of mourning and the uh, kind of the, the contrasting house of feasting, right? You see sobriety, those who are in the house of mourning. The house of mourning is, it, it kind of notes times of adversity. I'm sure if I were to ask for a raise of hands in here, getting, again, talking to most of you, 
at various points. And beyond that, simply by saying, you share the human condition. I would ask how many of you feel that you have seasons of adversity? Well, I look out and half the audience looks depressed already right now. So that's a vote for the yes category. How many of you look at it to reap benefit from it? This is the driving. This is, this is what the living or the wise who are living life rightly, they lay that to heart. Hey, this too shall pass is kind of how we simply say it. But are we always looking for it to pass? But the preacher is saying, the living are sober-minded in all of life, particularly regarding life's adversities. They're sober-minded. That is, they are not emotionally driven by every challenge that's before them. They don't emotively respond. They don't act out irrationally at difficulty and lash out at those who are near to them. How many times do we come to someone and say, I'm sorry that I said that, I just am, and then we make some excuse because of our other providence, that it boiled over and we lashed out onto someone. The sober-minded are those who recognize this is fleeting, and I'm not going to get wrapped around the axle too much about any one particular item. They're not driven on to emotively respond to everything. They're sober in their judgments. It is a cerebral engagement. I see this and I see that. I'm going to measure out impulse control. And think wisely. Because step back for a moment. This too is passing. This is fleeting. I have a few days that I'm passing like a shadow. I'm not going to, you know have a heart attack over this item. This is the judgment of the sober-minded or the living. And they see life's adversities as opportunities to mature. They see life's adversities as opportunities to mature. This sober-mindedness, this Ability to have impulse control yields to them, again, two keen insights are the sober in mind. There's two keen insights that yield unto them a better than existence than perhaps you or I, who don't have such impulse control, yet, again, as believers, praying for the strength and fruits of the Holy Spirit provided in the benefits of Christ, that we would have success and impulse control that is, there's two benefits. Number one, they recognize, as I've said, life is momentary. That gives them a mode of operation in all of life's challenges. Number one, I see this season of adversity. I'm not going to impulsively and emotively respond and lash out. I'm going to stay calm. Resisting the urge to just be overwhelmed by circumstance and ambiguity. I'm going to recognize life itself is momentary. Right, the whole, the whole, calm down. Everyone calm down. Secondly, 
they recognize, secondly, about this sober-mindedness. Recognizing the house of mourning is actually more beneficial than the house of feasting. Adversity makes for maturity. Number two, they recognize life's most formative and instructional moments are just that. Difficult moments. Formative and instructional moments are difficult moments. You remember in earlier on in his quest for the meaning of life, as he put it forward to those who live their life under the sun, he warned you that he's filled his life with Seinfeld episodes. He, he sat there and he, he's, he's watched, he's giggled. I said that once before, very few people have seen Seinfeld, which is mind-blowing to me, but either way, um, I don't know what you watch, whatever it is, it, it, the comedy, right, the idea of laughter. He's filled his life with a court jester. He's done it. Chapter 2. I filled my life with laughter because I wanted to be satirical about everything serious. I I wanted to throw off the sober-mindedness. It takes work and discipline. I don't want to yield to that. I just want to go ahead and have a good time. Make fun of it. Laugh about it. Sneer and snicker about everything complex and serious. Be a jokester. And he said, in the end, I said of laughter, it is madness. You cannot laugh your way through complexity. It takes sober-minded judgment. And the living lay this to heart. They recognize it. They don't wait for it. They recognize it. Sober-mindedness in this adversity will bring forth maturity and wisdom. Third, the third goodness or betterness here in the passage. What can tell me what is good about life? Well, I can tell you what's better than something else about life, and that is the goodness or the betterness of wisdom. Number three, the goodness of wisdom. Living my days wisely is a profitable measure rather than living it foolishly and throwing it away. Okay, you can live foolishly, yes, but a better existence is to live wisely. How much more so for those who are united to Christ by faith? Verse 5, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Consider that just for a moment. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. That same idea of flattery. He goes on to tell you in verse 6, foolish talk is like crackling thorns under a pot. In other words, it's vanity. It makes no sense. Who cares? It's snapping and there's no substance. As far as I'm going to blow up. There's going to be no change. You hear a little crackle. It means nothing. It's emptiness. It doesn't cause you to move. It doesn't cause fear. It's nothingness. It's snap, crackle, pop. Big deal. It's vanity. It's nothing. So too is surrounding yourself with foolish wisdom, foolish people. But rather, better as a man, a better pathway as a man to even be rebuked by the wise. Look as he drops down to fully disclose wisdom's goodness in verse 11. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. Do you see, he calls you to protect it. The advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. The goodness of wisdom is explained here in Scripture. If you look through Proverbs as well, and and again, wisdom literature unto wisdom literature, from Ecclesiastes to Proverbs, if you read those two and put them together, again and again and again, Scripture's testimony regarding wisdom is that it is to be gained or 
attained. Wisdom is not innate within any one given person. Wisdom is gained. You're constantly encouraged to gain it, lay hold of it, keep it, possess it, seek for it. When she calls, listen up. Wisdom doesn't just come from within. Wisdom is gained. Those who are mature and grow in goodness seek her out. Even if the acquisition of wisdom is by correction. You see, it's so life-preserving. It's so necessary for your goodness in life. It is worth acquiring even through correction. The goodness of wisdom, that which preserves the life, and you notice the moment, the issue about money, the protection of money. Remember, money does make life less risky, right? Wisdom makes life less risky. The goodness of wisdom is upon the one who has a receptive attitude in both positive instruction and negative criticism. The goodness of wisdom is upon one who has a receptive attitude in both positive instruction, that is the words of the wise, and negative criticism. Verse 5, it's better, it's a better pathway to hear correction from someone who's actually wise than to play around and hear the song and play the dirge of the fool. Four, the fourth goodness of who can tell man how to live his life wisely in God's providence. Well, there are some accessible and available uh, ways or manners of living that if laid hold of are better in their yield or outcome than living uh, exhausted in a sense of frustration and having no way forward. Here are some goodnesses of how one can live a successful, quote-unquote, life. How much more so by those whose faith rests in the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit producing His fruits. Number four, the goodness of patience and humility. Look at verse 8 and 9. That is the goodness of patience and humility. He says in verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. This, this, this is interesting. Again, how we look at life and its time. How, how we unite verse 8 with verse 12. You, you confess. Again, the living confess. That is the wise lay this to heart. You are going to pass your days and they are few. And they're so fleeting, it's like a shadow. Now, Consider in that time scale of life happening quickly, look at his word to you of measuring your responses to life as it happens quickly. Verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And he further clarifies a little bit, giving us a clue as to how we handle this proverb. The patient in spirit is better than 
it's a better model for you is patience than being proud in spirit. How do we put better is the end than the beginning, therefore it makes sense that patience is required for a better outcome of any one difficult or complex situation in life. How should I respond? This is the goodness of patience and humility. Follow the logic here of the text, if you would, on number four with me just for a moment. Since the end of a matter, that's key. How is it looking linearly, right? So here you are. Situation develops. It's right here, right in front of you, happening in real time. Now, here's something that's taking place. How do I respond? Well, think. The end, so, so, so you have, well, yeah, so not this, this. The end is better than the beginning. How it gets going. What just was said to me. How did it happen? How should I respond? Oh, my goodness. Boom. The end is going to be better than the beginning. Okay, well, that, that's your two points. It's concluded and it's begun. How should I respond when it begins so that I can make it to the conclusion where it's going to be good? From A to B. Patience. Something blows up, something happens in real time to you. What should your emotive response be? Patience. Wait. Wait. Why? Because the end of the matter is better than its beginning. Withhold judgment. Slow down. Wait. The, 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 what has just been said or what has just happened hasn't even been dealt with yet. Well, let, let's hear the facts. Let's hear the testimonies. Let's respond. What was someone thinking? What was the attitude behind it? Why did this happen? Should I have done something differently? Okay, we haven't even heard any of that yet. The, the, the end is going to be better, not necessarily, if we dwell with patience from A to B. The end will be better than the beginning. That is, he who subdues the impulse to demand an answer or demand a conclusion he who subdues that impulse gains the best returns. Better is the end of a thing. The wise lay this to heart. Better is the end of a matter than its beginning. Why? Because going from the beginning to the end, there is patience demonstrated. Things are listened to. Words are exchanged. Relationships are clarified. But if we don't show patience, we're proud. In our spirits. Now, look at what happens to the proud when a matter takes place. When something hits the ground. And they say, tell me now. Look what happens, verse 9. Don't be quick. In your spirit to become angry. When something happens, be patient. Be slow to assess. Don't be proud, because proud will lead to anger. For anger lodges in the bosom of fools. 
That's the opposite of the protection of your life. Being a fool is opposite, obviously, of wise. And he who allows anger to burn within because he's not getting his way is acting foolishly. So he calls for a matter. Be patient. James 1.19 says the gains are better. As the preacher says, impatience, resist it. Anger will be in your chest, burning all the time. If you resist that, humility is gained. James 1.19, let every individual be quick to hear the matter. That is, be patient. The end is better than the beginning. Be patient. James says, let every person be quick to hear the matter. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. This is the goodness of patience and humility. Patience number five. There are some accessible, readily available manners whereby you can live your life successfully in the ambiguity, in life's complexities, in the challenges. There are five manners or proverbs whereby we can live successfully, though we might not be able to interpret life clearly and perfectly. The goodness of trusting, number five, the goodness of trusting in the sovereignty of God. Like any good reformed message, the preacher ends there. Perhaps it is that Kaholi was the first articulating a reformed sermon here, ending well on the sovereignty of God where our hearts find rest. Number five, the goodness of trusting in the sovereignty of God. This is better than not. Verse 13, consider the work of God. When life is happening, things are complex. It's hard to really, you know, it's kind of like a greased pig. You're trying to get there and it's shooting out. We don't wrestle a lot of greased pigs anymore. You know, animal cruelties and anxieties and so forth, but back when they used to have freedom, I mean, the idea at the, at the county fair, you know, they grease the pigs up and chase them and try to tackle them. Either way, either way. Um, life is like that. Life is complex and challenging. It's hard to get your hand wrapped around uh, the ambiguities. T- it, what he says here, who can make straight what God has made crooked? Uh, he, he already stated this earlier in his quest. Who, who can make straight what God has made crooked? That, that gets back to providence. The, who, who's, in your little life, who's going to demand that God change his pattern? God change his way. Who's going to contend with the Almighty? Who's going to stand and do that? He's already made plain manners whereby if we live according to them, life is better than the other option. When life is so complex and it's hard to work at, consider the work of God. This is his doing. This is his work. This is his earth. Our lives are in his hands. One would simply frustrate themselves to no end, to seek that which he has made crooked and bend it straight. And he explains it finally in verse 14. 
of things that are crooked and straight and things that are complex and a bit of ambiguity or turbulence is involved and trying to seek clarity on something, as we mentioned this morning, a couple of recent deaths and the challenges of how to make sense of all things and how, how, how to, to pin it down and give ultimate clarity to an issue that lacks that sense of ultimacy or that sense of ultimate clarity. Verse 14, he puts it in the coming of money and the going of money or the goodness of family and the lack thereof. He says in verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. This is the work of God. Don't despise good days. Don't walk around constantly complaining, even when things are good. Because there are good days. And there are genuinely bad days. And when they're good, don't despise them. And in the day of adversity, because there are adverse days, consider this equally. Here's how a a better than existence is. As we look at life, God has made one, that is the day of prosperity, as well as the other, the day of adversity. He has made them both. And he has done so so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Again, as he concluded the same earlier in his quest, He's done so to make clear to you that you are not him. That he alone knows the beginning from the end. And going from beginning of our lives to the end of our lives, he calls us forth to not settle all of the complexities of life or to be frozen in time and in place because of them but to live and act by faith. Faith in what? That God is a righteous king. He is unto those whose faith rests in the Lord Jesus Christ a loving father. And he sovereignly as righteous and loving determines all that comes into my life, both what I perceive to be good and also what I perceive to be adverse. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...